News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. The Trans-Canada Trail is 27,000 kilometers long. It stretches across the country, connects the Atlantic, the Arctic, and the Pacific Oceans. And Deanne Whalen has just become the first person to complete it, or is very close to that point. And she's paddling, cycling, and walking her way along the trail. And to finish, she's going to paddle into Victoria. So we thought we'd catch up to her right now and find out where she is. Deanne, thanks so much for joining us this morning. Well, thank you, Simi. Thank you. It's where are you? Here. Where are you? I am I am sitting on Sydney Island. I'm trying not to speak too, too loudly because I'm sitting right on the edge of the ocean next to my canoe, and there's lots of people still sleeping in tents. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, beautiful Sydney Island. I'm just sat here and watched the, uh, the sunrise and quickly inhaled the coffee so that you would be speaking to Dee and not Sasquatch this morning because, you know... After six years out here. <laughs> I'm sorry. Did you say how long How long has this taken you? Six years. What? That's yes, crazy. I, left, I know. I left July 1st, 2015 from St. John's, Newfoundland. And uh, I never could have imagined it would have taken six years for me. But, you know, on, I, uh, on day 10 of the journey, right at the very beginning, I woke up one morning and I had to schedule, you know. And I looked at the schedule and I'm like, you have not even accomplished day one yet. So you're going to need, so I just burned the schedule because I realized, you know, that wasn't going to be happening. And uh, I just surrendered to the journey at that point. And uh, I like to tease everybody and say, that's the day I dropped my rabbit suit for my turtle shell on this journey. (laughs) But uh, really, I realized that not everything of value can be measured numerically, right? Like I turned, I, I left after turning 50 and like how fast or how long or how strong, like none of that really matters to me anymore. It was more like, that race kind of feels manic and I just remembered the old tale of the rabbit and the turtle and I'm like well the rabbit you know burns itself out and the turtle completes the journey so I knew I needed to heed that wisdom if I was going to survive and and complete this epic journey and Um, uh, and it you know and it's about the it's about the most meaningful way not the most fastest way (laughs) I love that I do so Deanne why like where did this idea come from why are you so committed to it well, it's a great question to me. I mean, how do we really understand our passions, right? I mean, look, you get up at 4 o'clock in the morning to do your job every day. We are what we're willing to suffer for, I guess, you know. Um, but I'd like to say it's a story with many beginnings, and I'd have to say my mother was actually the one who planted this seed. Um, she made a donation to the trail in the early 1990s and said it was something she'd love to do. And then 20 years later, that seed sprouted, I guess. Um, I'd already filmed on Mount Everest, so I'd been to the world's highest mountain. And I filmed up on the northwest coast of Ellesmere Island, so one of the most northern coastlines in the world. So I thought, well, the longest trail in the world did seem like a pretty natural fit. But, uh, <laughs> and as, you know, and yeah. as a storyteller, too, I just really thought that the trail was this perfect metaphor for this story, which is I was looking for an umbilical cord that connects us all. You know, for all our differences, what is it that we share? And, of course, it's the land and the water. So you decided to do this. There must have been some times along the way, though, in the last six years that you thought, you know what, this was a mistake. I shouldn't be doing this. Like, what What were the hard parts here? Well, to be honest with you, Cindy, I never actually felt like I would wanted to quit because of the way I traveled. You know, if I was tired, I just I stopped. I rested a day or a week or whatever I needed. Like, I, I knew that I had to sustain self-care, right? And uh I also took days off to film and write and connect and work with other artists. And, uh, 
on a journey this long, home just becomes something that you carry within yourself, you know, and um, you won't make it on a schedule because you can't control Mother Nature anyway. So, yeah, I just, uh, it, 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 there was never really a question of quitting because it was just a question of just like giving myself what I needed and finding the resolve to just right. continue on. You know? What were the highlights for you? Like, were there moments when you thought, oh, I'm so lucky to be doing this. I'm so glad I did this. Almost every day, really. I mean, uh, you know, just um, it's very grounding to be out in nature for this long. Um, at first, of course, there was fear and apprehension because it was the unknown. And I mean, to be honest with you, before I even left, I don't I'd never really had done more than one night alone out in like camping or anything like that, you know, and I'd never paddled alone before. And now I've paddled 10,000 kilometers. So, yeah, a lot of it was just overcoming personal fear and um and a lot of that just happens from doing it. And then your fear is not substantiated. You know, the big bear didn't come in the middle of the night and steal me out of my tent. And, and I'm, you know, um, I haven't drowned. <laughs> or oh, whatever the apprehensions were, they just, they really, you know, faded away with, with just doing it. And, um, oh, yeah, I just, I feel really connected out here. I thought I'd be really alone. But once you, there's something ancient in our DNA that wakes up once you've been out here for a long time, you know. What, what was your favorite, <laughs> um, what was your favorite spot that you went to? Like, I'm just looking at a map of the Trans-Canada mm. Trail and boy, oh boy. I mean, you've been going places. You went all the way up to the <laughs> Arctic Ocean there. So what was your favorite spot? I like to say everywhere I found human kindness, that's for sure. And that was right across this country from day one in St. John's right through to today. Like, you know, so somebody running over and saying, oh, here, here's a coffee for your interview. You know, <laughs> I mean, uh, there's just I've human kindness is, is been the currency of this journey. And I would have to say as far as the trails go, like in all honesty, the water trails have been my favorite because they're the most ancient. And um, there's just something like uh, that's, one thing I'll carry away from this journey is I know I'll be doing a lot more long distance canoe trips. It's just something, yeah, I just absolutely fell in love with canoeing. Oh, you're going to miss this though, aren't you, Deanne? Like this is what you've been doing for six years. So when are you going to reach Victoria? And then what do you do the day after? <laughs> That's a great question, Simi. I'm going to reach Victoria for the first time in six years. I actually have a date that I'm aiming for, and that's August 1st, which is this Sunday. I'm going to try to land uh, just next to Clover I think it's called Clover Point um, in Beacon Hill. And, and um, that's where mile zero is for the Trans-Canada Trail. And I'm going to land on the beach there around 11 a.m., I hope, and um, and then be able to walk the last couple hundred meters with my mom and my dad and my family and friends and anyone else who, who cares to join us, really. It's just about, at that point, reconnecting and sharing and um and being with family again, you know, I mean, that's certainly one of the big costs of, of, of going on these expeditions and, and, and journeys is, is you know, you're always, there's always things you have to leave behind. And um, the only thing that really matters are the people that we love at the end of the day. And uh, so I'm really looking forward to reconnecting on that level with people that I love. Um, but I'm also really, really excited for me because I'm a filmmaker. And I my inspiration to come out here was to make another film and uh, also have a personal journey, you know. And um, so now it's, it's an exciting time of, like, applying for grants and finding the funding to complete this documentary and write a book and uh, that'll probably take me the next two years of my life so well, i'll get to relive every day of it <laughs> i look forward to reading and watching that for sure dan listen best of luck 
Thank you, Simi. Have a great day. You too. She's going to have a beautiful day. It's Deanne Whalen, an award-winning filmmaker, multimedia artist who is just about to become the first person to complete the Trans-Canada Trail. Take a look at this map online and you'll see what a huge accomplishment this is by Deanne. 27,000 kilometers across the country connects the Atlantic, the Arctic, the Pacific Oceans. And on Sunday, she will paddle into Victoria and she will finish that six-year journey. This is Mornings with Simi. Are you worried about the fourth wave of COVID-19? Well, that's the question asked in a new poll of Canadians right across the country. And without a doubt, I think we can say the answer is yes, Canadians are worried. Daryl Bricker from Ipsos Public Affairs joins us now with more on this. Good morning, Daryl. Good morning, Simi. So how worried are we? We're very worried. Uh, 81% of us say that uh, they're worried about variants uh, affecting Canada, and they uh, also see this uh, potentially building up into a fourth wave. So 69% of us think that that might happen. Now, is this like in every province? Was it right across the country? Yeah, it's, it's pretty high everywhere. So what we're talking about here is a sort of degrees of difference, but not degrees in terms of difference in terms of overall uh, overall opinion. We're all kind of worried, but disproportionately worried in places like Atlantic Canada that had a bit of an easier go during the, the previous uh, round of COVID, although more recently it's been a bit more difficult, and Ontario. The least concerned about it at the moment is Quebec, but this is something that we've seen throughout the uh, the pandemic where they seem to be more positive on, on many elements of the disease. Right, because you also asked, I know, you asked about um, the consensus on a new normal. Like, is this the new normal? And what do people have to say about that? Well, about 67% of us say uh, we should le- be learning to live learn to live with COVID. Uh, so, uh, yeah, it is becoming a bit of a new normal. And, you know, other polls that we've done show that people keep pushing out the date for when all of this is going to end. And there is, I think, a, a growing belief that this is just something that we're going to be having to manage for the longer term. Right, but that was different depending on which province you lived in, wasn't it? Yeah, again, Quebec is the province that stands out as having a bit of a different opinion on this. But uh, places like Alberta, for example, uh, you know, less interested in things like shutdowns and more of a libertarian type of event. And in, in places like Quebec, where they think they've had a, a different experience with this, um, uh, not uh, not quite as high. Interesting, though. So it just goes. It also just kind of reflects how their governments in those provinces are kind of treating the situation. Yeah, it is one of those things where we tend to get our signals about what's going to happen from the uh, from the external world, but when it comes to what's actually happening in your life, you get it from what's happening around you, which means your provincial governments, your municipal governments, anybody that's right. close to you. The federal government is seen as having primary responsibility for something like vaccines, you know, accessing vaccines, which was a bigger issue a, cu- a couple of months ago. But yeah, it, it tends to it tends to become, once you get into managing the issue, more of a local set of concerns. Right. And I know a lot of areas are talking again about restrictions here in BC for the first time ever. We're having regional restrictions put in place for areas around Kelowna. How did the people that you ask feel about the idea of more kind of lockdown measures or restrictions? Well, they certainly don't like them. Um, that's something that we've been seeing consistently through the, the pandemic, but they're prepared, to, uh, they're prepared to contemplate them. In fact, 69% of us say that they, uh, they would support uh, more lockdowns if it's necessary to, uh, to stop a fourth wave. Really? And so it must have been different by province, though. Uh, again, you know, you get into the situation where Alberta, libertarian, um, not so interested in it. Quebec, they don't really necessarily feel that they need it. Uh, British Columbia and places like British Columbia and, and, and Ontario, 
definitely higher levels of support for things like lockdowns. Isn't that so interesting? Like, Daryl, have you seen that change in the time of the pandemic? You've been asking people about these issues? Uh, we the, the pattern, the reason I can say it so easily is because the pattern is pretty well established. I would say, though, that on the issue of lockdowns, 69% is lower than what we would be seeing, say, for example, six months ago, where support for lockdowns would be higher. So I think that we're moving into a phase now in which people are more uh, likely to be contemplating the idea of figuring out um, um, more targeted ways of dealing with this uh, and, uh, and contemplating living with COVID for the longer term, which means that you can't lock down people indefinitely. And do you think that's also the impact of vaccines? Yeah, definitely. A 62% of us say that uh, vaccines are going to help with us with this. So, uh, you know, we have a long conversations in this country about vaccine hesitancy. There's a difference between uh, vaccine denial and people just having some concerns. And most of what we're dealing with in terms of vaccine hesitancy is people with concerns. So the longer that this goes on, the more that people see that uh, the way out of it is going to be vaccination, the more likely you're going to pick up those people who are merely hesitant rather than deniers. Right, because you did ask people about that too, right? About how how they feel about the vaccines kind of fixing the situation. Yeah, and very high support for that. 69% of the populations, or actually, sorry, 62% of the populations saying that that's going to, uh, that's, it's going to help. But this is th- research that we've seen all over the world and, you know, particularly in Canada on the issue of vaccine hesitancy. So if you're, you think that there's a big population of vaccine deniers in, in Canada, it's, it's probably around 5%. It's not really high. It's a last mile type of issue. The bigger issue that we're dealing with right now is just getting vaccines to people who are a bit concerned. So interesting. Daryl, thank you. Always a pleasure, Simi. This is Mornings with Simi. It's been a rough week, you could say, for the central Okanagan interior part of our province. COVID-19 cases there are continuing to climb. You've got wildfire problems and the smoke choking other areas and now hotter temperatures expected over the next couple of days. It is not a great situation there. So we heard yesterday that Provincial Health Officer Dr. Bonnie Henry and Health Minister Adrian Dix and the Interior Health Interim Chief Medical Health Officer have declared an outbreak for the central Okanagan region. So this includes Kelowna, West Kelowna, West Bank First Nation, Peachland, Lake Country, and some other electoral areas in there. And so that means there's going to be regional restrictions. That's the first time we've done something like this during the pandemic. But Dr. Henry said these are needed. There's been quite an impact on businesses as well. So joining us now to talk about all of this is Kelowna Mayor Colin Basrin. Colin, thank you very much for being here. Yeah, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. What have the last couple of days been like? Uh, well, I mean, the last couple of weeks have, have been very challenging for our community. Uh, you probably followed, of course, the, claim, uh, the crane collapse here that uh, killed five people, right. the wildfires, uh, the COVID case increases. Um, yeah, it's, it's been challenging, but uh, Kelowna residents and Okanagan residents continue to, uh, to rise above it and do the best we can to get through it. And I understand that a lot of businesses were, you know, thinking they had to close anyway. They were doing it on their own voluntarily because of COVID-19 cases. Yeah, so a lot of business, well, uh, some hospitality businesses were closing due to the fact that some of their staff had uh, tested positive. So doing the right thing and then closing down and uh, doing all the necessary things needed uh, in order to reopen uh, whenever it's appropriate to do that. So we were seeing that and then, uh, you know, it it made sense given the uh, rising case count that this was going to happen. Um, so yeah, it's been tough on businesses for sure. 
um, and this these new regional restrictions are certainly disappointing. Um, but it's it's the right thing to do uh, given what's happening with the cases. Uh, I think probably the biggest frustration though is that we continue to see the large majority of those cases be people who are unvaccinated, and that I think is probably the most frustrating part. Yeah, how is the city getting involved in that? That I understand there's also going to be kind of a campaign wrapping up to get the message out on that front. Yeah, so we'll do whatever we can to get the message out. You know, social media channels, uh, myself and others doing media interviews. Uh, We're working with Interior Health on uh, locations for, you know, pop-up vaccination clinics uh, and and, and things like that. Um, So certainly we we play a part. But of course, as you know, this is uh, driven by uh, the Ministry of Health and our uh, local health authority. Um, but uh, we're continuing to cooperate with them wherever we can and, and help get the word out and get people you know, vaccinated. That's the, uh, yeah. that's the quickest and easiest, best way we're going to get through this is for people to do the right thing and do that. Did you think that these regional restrictions were necessary at this point? Uh, I mean, that's tough to say. I'm not a medical health uh, expert, but, uh, you know, I I appreciate the work that's being done. And I think given the uh, climbing case count, uh, it's probably, you know, yeah, it's probably needed. Uh, And I also think that it's uh, it's a good thing for us to be discouraging people as as painful as it is, because I love when people come visit my city. Um, It's the appropriate thing to say at this point that if you're not vaccinated, please don't come to Kelowna uh, and the Okanagan. You know, what has the tourist situation been like over the last month? Uh, it's been crazy busy. Uh, you know, uh, a lot of people want to come to the Okanagan, rightfully. Uh, it's the reason why we live here. We love it. But uh, it's, uh, tourism has been very busy. Uh, hotel rooms are booked. Uh, hospitality uh, establishments have been full. And uh, so we continue to be the, the hot spot that people want to visit throughout the country. Uh, and rightfully so. But it, it's, like I say, it's never easy to have to tell people now, uh, unless you're vaccinated, please stay away. But uh, it's the right thing to do right now. All right, what about that indoor mask mandate? Now they're saying indoor public places, you have to put that mask back on uh, in the Kelowna area there. Is that something you're going to be watching out for? Do you think people will listen? Uh, I think people, well, yeah, absolutely. I think people will listen. Uh, it's the right thing to do. And, uh, you know, previously when we had the mask mandate, uh, the majority of residents followed it. I don't think it'll be a problem uh, you know, putting them back on as frustrating as it is. Um, and the good news is, is that, you know, most, if all businesses still get to keep operating. So uh, it could be a lot worse. And I guess that's my warning, too, is that, uh, again, if people don't get vaccinated, uh, this is step one of uh, rolling back of the opening. Um, and there could be more restrictions on the way if people don't adhere to uh, what's being asked of us right now. And uh, that's a scary thought. So I, I don't yeah. want to see further restrictions and uh, hopefully we can avoid them. Mayor Bastard, why do you think it is that the the vaccination rates are a little bit lower in that area? Um, yeah, that's a good question, and I, I don't really have a, a good answer for that. Um, and uh, keeping in mind, too, not to, to put the onus on people who have visited from elsewhere, um, because, again, the you know, Kelowna residents uh, play a part in this, too. Uh, but I think that we've had people visit here who have been unvaccinated, uh, and that's a, you know, part of it, the issue as well. Um, but I, yeah, I can't explain why there are uh, people in our community choosing not to. Um, and uh, again, we'll continue to do what we can to show them that it's the right thing to do. Right. Do you think that's what it was? Or was it just like, you know, things got really busy there, I think, really quickly when restrictions got lifted and and perhaps like younger people just were too busy? You know, I, I, it's, it's a combination of many things. I, I can't point to any one particular reason why the case count climbed in, in our city. 
Um, but uh, yeah, part of it certainly is uh, how many people uh, we're visiting here. Um, but uh, like I say, at the end of the day, people need to do the right thing, though, and, and go and get their shots. So how long will these new restrictions be in place for? Uh, well, it appears at this point it's going to be two weeks. And then, uh, of course, uh, things will be reassessed and, and then uh, we'll see where things go from there. But I'm hoping it's only two weeks. But I think we've seen when uh, other orders have been put in place that oftentimes two weeks is, uh, is not enough. Uh, but I'm really hoping in this particular instance it is. Uh, this is the first time we've seen regional restrictions put in place like this. And I hope, uh, I hope it's the last time. Uh, how's the wildfire situation? What's the smoke like in Kelowna? Uh, the smoke the last uh, two or three days has been pretty thick. Uh, we're, I believe the weather forecast calls for it to clear out a bit uh, today and, and starting tomorrow. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it's, it's pretty thick. Fortunately, in Kelowna itself, uh, there are no fires in the immediate area. Uh, which is good. So it's, it's smoke mostly from uh, fires elsewhere uh, burning around us. But uh, it's, again, it's, it's part of uh, a, ro- a really challenging uh, couple of weeks that we've had here in the Okanagan, but it doesn't seem to be deterring people from visiting here. Right. But what is your message then for tourists or potential tourists at this time? So the message is, if you're not vaccinated, unfortunately, you're not welcome here. And uh, that is the message. And I hope that people will adhere to that. Uh, I know some won't, and that will be frustrating, but hopefully then they won't um, add to our case count. But yeah, please, uh, and it pains me to do this because I want people to come and visit and experience Kelowna. Uh, But yeah, if if you don't have your shots, uh, don't come. All right. Thank you very much for your time this morning and best of luck. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. That's Colin Bassman, who's the mayor of Kelowna, talking about a challenging time uh, for that area. The central Okanagan uh, had new restrictions imposed yesterday by health officials. That's the first time that we have seen regional restrictions imposed. So what do those restrictions include? Well, mask mandate for indoor public places. Uh, That's for anybody older than the age of 12. They want people to organize events outdoors rather than indoors if possible. And restaurants are going backwards a step to step three, which means they've reduced the maximum capacity of indoor venues. And they said bars, restaurants and nightclubs must have COVID-19 safety plans in place. They're allowing them to stay open, nightclubs in particular, allowing them to stay open. They're allowing liquor service to remain at normal hours, but... They once again want people to stop socializing between tables. They're reducing the second dose interval of vaccinations to four weeks because they want to get people vaccinated quicker. So that'll be a big one. And as we heard the mayor just say there, they're also discouraging non-essential travel to the region by people who are not yet fully vaccinated. And that's a big one. Like if you were planning to go and you haven't got that second shot, they're saying, listen, we'd love to have you, but get your second shot before you come and visit or get a shot in particular before you come and visit. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, BC finds itself in a bit of an unusual situation, a deficit of more than $5 billion. And everyone looks at it and thinks, wow, not bad. Could have been a lot worse. Well, the financial update shows that the deficit is billions of dollars less than was expected. So what happened? Let's get a breakdown of our financial picture. Joining us now is Selena Robinson, BC's finance minister. Thank you for joining us this morning. Good morning, Simi. How are you? I'm good. Thank you. So where did we do well here? Like what changed with our financial picture? Well, I think what really changed, uh, frankly, is that British Columbians did the right thing. 
They followed the the health guidance uh, that Dr. Uh, Bonnie Henry provided for us. They got vaccinated, and it really allowed us to um, to op- to you know move forward uh, to to uh, restart to start our recovery plan in a timely way, um, and to get back to a more normal life. And that just really meant that more people were working. We've recovered all of our jobs that were lost. Uh, and we have uh, a more normal interaction, and that's been good for the economy. And did that show in certain aspects of, of revenue? Uh, f- certainly, for sure. Um, we certainly saw um, um, you know more tax revenue come come in than we expected because people were working; they were they were uh, able to pay their taxes. We found that um, you know certainly the forestry sector uh, was very robust. Uh, and that was uh, was not uh, expected. And the other thing that I think is really important to acknowledge is, you know, ICBC turnaround. That w- was pretty significant. Uh, we some said perhaps that it couldn't be done, um, and we did it. And it's now uh, in the black. And uh, we even gave uh, I think it's nine hundred and fifty million dollars back in um, in COVID uh, savings back to drivers. So there were lots of positives that we were able to see um, on the economic front because people did the right thing. Right. I think you should also be prepared that now that ICBC is doing well, people are going to start to say, well, that money's going to stay with ICBC, right? It is. We changed the law. We're, we're very different from the, the, the former government. The, the BC Liberals use that money for other things, and, and we committed that it stays uh, for drivers. It's about making sure that people get the care that they need when they need it and keeping uh, rates low for drivers. Okay, so let's talk about the other areas then that did improve. The property transfer tax did better than expected as well. It did. We certainly saw the um, activity in the housing market that wasn't anticipated. Um, And that was, you know, as a result of COVID, we certainly saw people looking to uh, change their living situations, working from home. Um, They found that they could, A, work from home. They didn't need to be close to their work. um, And B, that they needed more space. So we certainly, no one was predicting uh, that. Um, And certainly with with, um, low interest rates too, that that added that to that activity level. Uh, What we are seeing now is that that is leveling off and they're, the experts are predicting to see uh, more moderation in that market in the in the year ahead. So we're certainly continuing to keep an eye on how the the housing market is um, is is operating um, throughout British Columbia. Right. So okay. So about five billion dollars in deficit, but that's still a gap that needs to be closed. How are we going to do that? That's a that's an excellent question. And when we delivered our uh, our budget in April, the, um, the the current budget year that we're in, we we're really clear with British Columbians that uh, this um, pandemic has impacted, um, you know, every single government around the world. Um, every, you know, it's, it's a global uh, phenomenon and that we were on solid fiscal ground uh, as British Columbians because we have had, you know, a series of balanced budgets for, for quite some time. Um, and we have a very resilient um, economic base. We have uh, a diversity in, in our economy. And the, the economists look to us around uh, and certainly have re- you know, recognized that this diversified economy uh, for our province really makes a difference and, and allows us to keep on even keel. Um, and the other thing that we, we said back in, in April, because this is unprecedented and we've never been here before, um, understanding sort of you know, how things are going to come back, when they're going to come back, we certainly see the tourism sector, service sectors, 
still very much impacted by COVID. Um, so understanding uh, which sectors of our economy continue to need help um, is, is important. And also how, um, while we've started recovery, it's not a full recovery just yet. So we've committed that with uh, the next budget, budget 2022, we will have a plan to get back to balance, recognizing it is going to take some time. This has been, uh, you know, certainly a challenge for all of us, but we also needed uh, and still need to make sure that we're there for people. That's what, uh, what everyone needed. I think people are grateful mm-hmm. that we were able to respond and get vaccines into arms uh, as quickly as, as we have been. And really, at the end of the day, I think British Columbians were the ones who um, need to be acknowledged and thanked for doing the right thing so that we could um, keep things as steady as we can. Right. Are, are you concerned, though, about certain areas? Like you mentioned, okay, part of the revenue did well from property transfer tax because of how the market performed last year, but that market is leveling out now, so we can't expect that year after year mm-hmm. to happen. So are there challenges that you are concerned about for the next couple of years? Well, I'm the finance minister. I'm always concerned about you know making sure that we can continue to provide the services that people count on um, and th- so that they can thrive. I mean, that is you know, is our role um, as government is to support people, to support businesses, to support communities, so that people can have, you know, a good life, a life where they can take care of their of their families, you know, a life where they can um, live with dignity, age, age with grace and with dignity. That's, I think, what we all want. And we've certainly seen through the pandemic how important um, many of these things are around, you know, how to right. invest um, in, in, in people and in families. So that's why, for example, our child care plan is part of our economic recovery plan. That's why we're investing in child care, because we know that when, when people can work, uh, they can take care of, we can take care of each other. And so child care, you know, became, uh, and I'm so grateful that we've had this child care plan uh, that we, we started rolling out a number of years ago, because it was critical to getting through to getting through COVID. Right. So these are all the things that are continually in balance and uh, we're going to keep monitoring and make sure that, that British Columbians can, can have their needs met so that they can take care of their family. Is any kind of new revenue generation ideas on the table? You know what, at this point, there's uh, lots of, uh, of unknowns still. Uh, like, you know, we, we just saw just even just doing these public accounts. Um, you know, the, the fact that it's $2.7 billion lower than projected, it, the deficit, sort of tells us that there's still lots of unknowns. And so as we um, see more and more um, strength back in the economy, which, uh, you know, and, and more activity happening in a more normal, well, I'll say in a more normal context, we'll have a better sense of how to best move forward and address the deficit. And that will be in February. All right. Thank you for your time this morning. Thank you for having me. Have that, a good one. Bye-bye. You too. That's Lena Robinson, BC's finance minister, talking about the state of BC's books. Better than expected, but still a gap that needs to be closed. This is Mornings with Simi. COVID-19 is not the only public health crisis and emergency that we have in this province. For years, even before the pandemic came along, we were dealing with the opioid overdose crisis. And as much as we talk about it and as much as we try different things, we're still talking about people dying from this. The latest update from the BC Coroner's Drug Toxicity Report shows that at least five people were dying every day due to the ongoing opioid crisis. We've talked about safe supply. What else should we be doing at this point to try to finally put a dent in this? Well, joining us now is Mark Tyndall, professor in the School of Population and Public Health at UBC. Thanks for joining us this morning. 
Uh, my pleasure, Simi. Does this frustrate you when you think about it? Like everything else gets so much attention. Why don't we talk more about the opioid overdose crisis? Uh, it is uh, extremely frustrating for, uh, you know, people dealing with this every day and uh, people at, at risk. So it, uh, yeah, as you mentioned, it's been going on for about six years. When we first noticed a, a large num- increase in the number of people dying, it was I was the head of the BC Centre for Disease Control at that time. And uh, if you had told me six years later we'd still be dealing with these numbers, I wouldn't have wouldn't have believed you. <laughs> Has, we are. No kidding. Has anything improved during that time? Well, I think we've um, got into this pattern of incremental little things. So, you know, the, um, the, the reality is that the risk of overdosing today is higher than it was in 2016. The, the drugs are more toxic and more difficult to come by. And uh, people are uh, putting themselves at, at risk with every use. So the, the numbers that we get reported by the coroner's office, which are, you know, somewhere between 160 and 200 deaths per month, um, is really just a tip of the iceberg. For everybody that dies, there's probably 20 people who technically overdose and, and didn't die. So it's, a, it's just a massive, uh, a massive problem. So um, I think the ideas have been put forward. You know, we need... Um, you know, better housing and mental health supports and more recovery beds and the safe supply and all these things. And you could, the government could point to individual little programs that have been uh, implemented, but we really don't have a a plan. And uh, all these little incremental steps have really not um, improved the improve the odds of uh, of people using. So, you know, they might have worked if we were still dealing with the situation from six years ago. Uh, well, we needed, we never have really have a plan. There's nobody, there's no targets. There's nobody that's really accountable. Um, the, the, you know, government public health officials can get up there every month and say that they're really sorry that this is continuing and this is a tragedy, but there's, you know, it happens the following month and well, just the same, same thing all over again. And there's really no, no response. That's a good point, though, about, um, you know, no targets, because if you really want to accomplish something, especially with government, you set targets, right? And with this, we just keep saying, well, we hope this works, or we're going to try this. Yeah, and and really, there's no chance that these things are going to work in the scale that they've been, um, been happening. So, you know, just this week, we have the you know, the deputy prime minister here announcing um, a housing um, start. Well, that's 48 units. It's it's a great photo op, but it's just not going to make a dent in the, in the housing issue. And uh, we have safe supply guidelines now that uh, have been rolled out, but there's no real implementation plan or operational plan. So it's it, guidelines are fairly useless unless there's a, a plan to actually implement and support this. And we haven't been able to do that. So what would it take, do you think, at this point? Well, I I do think it would, we need a, we need targets and a plan and we need a massive investment in this. I mean, it's, it's, you know, arguably a very uh, difficult problem. We're dealing with a lot of people who have been left behind by society for the most part. And uh, they're not, it's not going to improve for them if, uh, you know, somebody gives them a prescription for Dilaudid. I mean, it's very, um, we need, you know, real investment in this. And, um, you know, I spend a lot of time walking around the, the downtown east side, which is, you know, often the focus of this. And uh, 
the streets are lined with people that uh, have nowhere to go and uh, and are just openly using drugs and running away from police. And this has been this situation for decades, and uh, that really has to change. You know, I've, all the times that we've talked about this on the show, Dr. Tindall, I'm always struck by somebody who once said that, you know, when somebody has a heart attack or a stroke in a hospital, that puts them into the continuum of care, right? We don't mm. just let them walk out of the hospital after having a heart attack and not have any follow-up or talk to them or help them change their diet or anything like that. Why don't mm-hmm. we do that with somebody who shows up with an overdose? Yeah, well, it's, uh, yeah, we're really just uh, trying to keep, uh, do the best just to keep people alive for that moment. And we send ambulances and paramedic teams out there and we've armed a lot of the community members with naloxone and then, uh, then our job's done. You know, we've uh, reversed that overdose and we're on to the next one. So we really don't have a plan. And unfortunately, we also need to uh, adjust our, our plan so that that, that follow up needs to be uh, c- tailored to that person's needs and what they're likely to do. So it's, you know, I've been in, involved clinically for a long time. People don't show up for their follow up appointments. Well, it's because they they don't trust the medical system. It's never done anything for them. And so we really need to, you know, alter our approach and, and make our programs um, attractive to people who, who we want to engage. Absolutely. Dr. Tyndall, thank you for your time. Okay, my pleasure. Appreciate that. Dr. Mark Tyndall is a professor in the School of Population and Public Health talking about our other public health crisis, and that would be the opioid overdose crisis. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, there's a lot of talk about what's going to happen in September, right? September 7th, I think, is the day that is marked as the last step in our reopening plan, which is when pretty much everything goes back to normal, coincides with heading back to school, not just for K-12, to but also for post-secondary students. So what can those students, professors and instructors expect with that return to in-person classes in September? To talk more about that, we're joined now by Brent Calvert, who's the president of the BC Federation of Post-Secondary Educators. Brent, thank you for being here. Good, good morning, Simi. Happy Thursday. Oh, happy Thursday to you. We're almost there, Brent. We're almost there. It's almost <laughs> Friday. Um, what do you know at this point about the plans for what like a classroom, a lecture hall is going to look like in September? Uh, what we know right now, I think the context is really important, is that we've transitioned off of the public uh, health office direction and what was uh, publicized institutional safety plans to what's called a communicable disease prevention plan. Uh, that came into effect on July 5th, and that's carrying us through to September 7th, as you described in the intro. We do know coming to campus that uh, we, we have uh, largely a return to in-person learning taking place, and in concert with that, we know that institutions right now are working with their uh, joint occupational health and safety committees and things to frame up what that looks like at each in- institution because there's a high degree of variability uh, right across the province. And what, what do you mean? Like, what would that variability entail? Well, depending on the type of courses and classes, right now uh, there's a mix. Uh, primarily in-person classes is what is being presented to people. There are also options for online classes or what they call hybrid or flex classes, which feature a mix of in-person and online. Okay, so does every institution have to decide what will work for them? Yeah, it's, it's uh, broken down uh, depending on the department, the type of course, the level of uh, you know, hands-on instruction would certainly be a factor within that. So it's a, it's a real different landscape now. And it's, uh, you know, the goal, I think, is to get as much of the you know, traditional in-learning uh, type of 
classes put in place. And uh, along with that, of course, you've got concerns about uh, vaccination rates, uh, are people doubly vaccinated, are masks mandatory, and none of these things have been settled yet. Is that still in the process? Because I know that the UBC Student Society came out and said they want to see all of that in place. Yeah, it's it's just starting to break. I think we're following on the heels of what's taking place in healthcare right now, where you've got different groups coming forward and saying, you know, the opportunities are ripe on a campus in an in-person learning environment for close proximity and some of the things we know that are problematic with COVID-19. And uh, in, in the absence of policies and the, the direction that we follow comes through the public health office. Uh, and I think institutions are going to be feeling the pressure from different stakeholder groups about what's being done, what's going to be put in place. You know, the overarching piece that we're looking at is I know everyone wants to feel safe and secure in that learning environment. Right. So what will be the options, do you think, Brent, then for, you know, hybrid classes? I think some students probably very much enjoyed having to be able to do those classes from home. Yeah. And I, I think that's what we're going to see is there's going to be a, a level of personal discretion in this where students may say, I feel most comfortable in that environment and, and working that way. Um, and I think uh, faculty too, right? Our faculty and staff are part of the mix here as long as, as well as administrators at campuses. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a tricky situation, and we don't have a lot of time left before September 7th is going to be upon us. Do you think that we will see, like, full-capacity classes, or will there be some physical distancing? The, the direction that we've received so far in in-person classes is that there are no restrictions. So if you're talking about a 300-person lecture hall, it can be used to capacity. Um, you know, issues have been raised about concerns around ventilation systems and things like that, and all the consultations have said those are, are fine and not a contributory factor. And so as far as we know, as of this date, that is the plan, is there will, would be no restrictions uh, on class sizes that way. Yeah, how does that make you feel, though? I, I think that's part of what's raising the concerns right now, is, um, you know, as you get closer towards that date, it's going to get more and more real for all parties involved. And, um, you know, if the student societies are coming forward with, uh, requests for confirmation or more details about how the safety is going to be ensured, you know, I can expect it's going to come from other stakeholder groups as well. Right. So obviously, you know, instructors would be a stakeholder group. So are your are you being consulted on this? We, we have a number of uh, associations that are starting to raise the concern. Um, they're looking at the in- environment. I think, you know, listening to the preface, hearing about what's taken place in Tokyo and what's happening in Okanagan, are going to continue to spike those fears, right? Uh, as the, the Delta variant comes in, people are going to be more and more concerned. Uh, and I think that's going to lead to some tough discussions around, you know, will, will masks be required, you know, at a minimum? Will uh, proof of vaccination be required? Um, it's hard to say right now how that's going to go. I can certainly confirm that it is a growing concern, though. I wonder, will it be dependent on where perhaps the post-secondary institution is, right? We saw in the central Okanagan, they're putting in place regional restrictions. Are we going to have to follow along with that? Yeah, I, I think that's a very interesting observation. It could be a contributory factor. Of course, our you know, thinking to date has been just looking at the province as a whole, but I'm sure that we're going to find there's going to be regional differences if the COVID uh, you know, Delta variant is, is continuing to spike in B.C., Right. So we're getting into August, though, here, Brent. So when is all of this going to be nailed down? Because I know students would like to have some answers. I'm sure instructors would, too, some answers about this. Yeah, I, I think we're, you know, like I said, we're probably on the heels of what's taking place in the healthcare. 
com- component people are asking. I mean, there's a real date with not only post-secondary but K-12, and I think the pressure is going to continue to build where people are asking, um, what what are we going to do to put in place? And I would think, you know, the practical, easy steps are looking at uh, requiring masks, right, uh, to ensure safety. I'm not sure if we have the time or the runway or the legal ability to get into the proof of vaccinations and those kind of things as well uh, in the short period of time that we've got. We'll see what happens. Brent, thanks for your time this morning. Thanks, Jimmy.